This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. I am Amy Mullins and I'm now joined with Ben Eltham and he's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and joins me to talk about federal politics. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning. How are you, Amy? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty sprightly. I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay too. That's good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So, Ben, there's a lot that's been happening as per usual. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let's just go with what the breaking news is overnight, first of all. Let's uh, talk about what we uh, briefly had a foray into last week, which was bullying allegations in the Liberal Party. The Parliamentary Party was last week, and then this week it's the Organisational Party, which basically means the rank and file, the branches that uh, are really part of the machinery of the Liberal Party. Yeah, that's correct. So answered Marlis, uh, the Liberal MP for the seat of Gilmore, I believe, yes. which is in Western Sydney, a marginal seat in New South Wales there. She's announced that she won't be standing for re-election um, and she's blamed it all on internal machinations within her own branch and within the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party. So she gave a speech last night to Parliament, which was a devastating indictment on the sexism and misogyny within the Liberal Party. She claimed that she'd been undermined by fellow Liberals, in particular uh, by a New South Wales MP um, who's after her seat. Mm. Um, and, and, and so there's sort of a bit of a pattern emerging here with a number of Liberal female Liberal MPs who are not standing for re-election because of the bullying and because of the intimidation that's going on within their own party. Yes, and this is really beyond the usual cut and thrust of politics. Um, People are aware that it isn't really um, as friendly as some other professions. Part of it is really power plays and, you know, um, a lot of it is a contest and conflict. But this is going beyond that. Anne Sudmalis used parliamentary privilege to uh, talk of her former challenger in the seat, um, was it Gareth... Is it Gareth Jones? Is that, is I think that it his was name? his name, yeah. See, he's so significant, yeah, we, we can't we even remember really his last he is. name. He's a New South Wales MP in the Berejiklian government. A state MP. State who MP. was seeking to move federally into yep. ANSI, yep. Um, which yep. a lot of people have wondered why he would want to move into from a safe seat in the state parliament to a very marginal seat in the federal parliament. Uh, well, ambition is a wonderful thing, isn't it, Amy? Um, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. This is not a not a safe seat that by any means. But, uh, of course, for those who, who want to play on the big stage, it's a federal seat. And mm. um, we've seen a number of examples of this in recent times. So it was interesting that sitting behind Anne Marlis for her speech last night was a lady called Jane Prentice. Now, she's a yes. long-standing MP in the Queensland LNP, and she's just been blasted out of her very safe seat uh, of Ryan in Queensland, which is in the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane, a very safe seat uh, by a challenger. So she's not even going to be back facing voters at mm. the next federal a election. A young Liberal male. 
Uh huh. A, lo- a young liberal male. Um, I forgot his name as well, but uh, <laughs> they all blend. I mean, yeah, it's another young bloke with a blue tie. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that says something I think about the modern Liberal Party, which is that <laughs> a little bit like Labor, they've now been taken over by uh, mm. a crew of machine men yes. uh, who are ruthless and who are quite prepared to undermine and, and even just blast out sitting members uh, if it means getting themselves a safe seat in the Parliament. Mm. And former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull it feels weird saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He actually had to intervene in the pre-selection that Anne Sudmalis was uh, engaged in he and many of his colleagues had to hit the phones and basically tell uh, this Gareth person to back off and that was the only reason why um, she prevailed in the end because Anne Sudmalis is alleging that uh, there is a range of activities that's been happening in her particular uh, branch such as branch stacking which is quite a, a big claim to make but it sounds like this has she said has been going on for five and a half years. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, branch stacking happens in every major party and in many pre-selection battles, so that's not surprising at all. And it is very difficult for MPs to, to hold their pre-selection unless they've got a lock on their locals, local party apparatus, mm. um, such as Tony Abbott does in the seat of Warringah, for example. He faced a pre-selection challenge, which he was able to see off pretty comfortably in the end. He did uh, get challenged, though, which yes, is he did. significant yep. in and of itself. Yep. Yep, and of course there's a ding-dong battle going on for pre-selection in the seat of Wentworth to see who will replace Malcolm Turnbull as the Liberal candidate in that safe seat. Yes, was that Dave Sharma? Uh, so the new anointed kind of Wentworth uh, uh, establishment candidate is a fellow called Dave Sharma. Uh, he's a Jewish-Australian with intimate ties to the Israel lobby. Um, he's considered to be a, a good candidate and a, and a very accomplished fellow in, in public life and business, but mm. he's certainly not of the stature of Malcolm Turnbull, and I think he's going to actually struggle uh, to hold that seat. We've got a high-profile independent candidate in Karen Phelps, former uh, boss of the AMA, the Doctors' Union, uh, and uh, someone who's been a a pretty high-profile campaigner for Mm. marriage equality, for example. Um, She will poll well, I think, as an independent in the seat of Wentworth, and she might go pretty close to winning, I think. Well, she's currently a politician in local government. She's a councillor, so she's already engaged in running campaigns and, and understanding, at least at a local level, what's involved in order to be a successful candidate. Absolutely, yep. And she's got a high profile in New South Wales and particularly in Sydney. So um, I think it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating by-election. Yes, and the date has been set. I believe it's October the 20th. Yep. Coming up soon, so mm. uh, the that's going to be all sorts of shenanigans descending upon the, the eastern suburbs of Sydney there. Um, and, of course, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's over in New York on a holiday with Lucy <laughs> at the moment, but that hasn't stopped him from uh, sniping and undermining uh, his predecessors uh, after he's left politics. He's mm. um, put out a statement saying that Peter Dutton should be referred to the High Court over his citizenship status. A lot of people asking why he didn't do that as the Prime Minister. Uh, good question. It is a good question. Mm. Um, You know, and of course, all of this is just part and parcel of the chaos and the disunity that's engulfing the Liberal government at the moment. So Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister, uh, for those who haven't been (laughs) around for a couple of weeks. Yeah. 
you know, and and I think what's really interesting about the Morrison prime ministership is that it's actually started reasonably well. You know, uh, Morrison is actually ahead in preferred prime minister terms in the opinion polls. Uh, and in a way, it's kind of a glimpse of what might have been for the Liberal Party. I think in a, in a different kind of environment, um, with a different setup, inheriting the prime ministership in a different way, Morrison would be a formidable opponent for Labor. But as it stands, I think it looks like they're headed for a crushing defeat at the next federal election. It pretty much does look like that. Um, and uh, I want to talk a bit about one of the developments, policy developments that's occurred in recent times, uh, really in the last few days. Um, we heard last week, uh, particularly from Penny Wong, um, but also I think Jason Clare, about Labor uh, basically changing their minds on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. There are some very, very hotly contested uh, clauses in that agreement, which America has walked away from. The Obama administration was part of that uh, development and uh, Trump has, you know, very quickly pulled out of ever being involved in the TPP. But, um, Ben, what has happened in terms of Labor's kind of turnaround? They do support free trade. That's not a new thing. But there are some clauses such as the ability of uh, overseas companies to sue any any government that is part of this um, agreement. And that is something which is pretty significant. Yes, that's correct. The so-called ISDS or Investor State Dispute Settlement Clauses, which will be a lawyer's picnic, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and you're right, they enable uh, foreign corporations to sue the sovereign government uh, of our nation uh, for doing things, for <laughs> enacting laws and having policies. And of course, there's some precedent for this, which yes. is Philip Morris suing the Australian government over plain packaging laws. And the Australian government won that case, but uh, it, it cost, cost a lot cost of money. tens and tens of millions of dollars to defend, uh, which was, after all, law passed by the sovereign parliament of the land uh, to save people's lives. Uh, but there you go, yeah. ISDS. So I don't know why Labor's flipped on the TPP. They haven't been particularly transparent about what the hell's going on there. Um, and they are saying, oh, we're a little bit reticent on, you know, a couple of clauses. We don't fully agree with the whole agreement, but we're still going to support it anyway. And somehow, should they come into government, they'll rectify the situation. But I'm pretty sure once you're in the agreement, you're in the agreement. It's very hard to start making alterations after. Yes, I mean, I think it's unlikely that we would leave it once we're in it. We certainly haven't left any of the other free trade agreements that we've signed up to, despite them being reasonably unbalanced. The US-Australian free trade agreement, for example, mm. uh, is highly skewed towards the United States. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, very interesting there. Um, I, I, I actually don't know. I'm going to have to go away and find out for you yeah. there, Amy. I'll do some digging over the week. Maybe <laughs> maybe we can come back next Tuesday and try and explain what the hell's going on with Labor and the TPP. It does defy logic um, because the previous Turnbull government, one of the, uh, I guess, things that they could continually hang their hat on were Steve Chobo, the former trade minister, going out and getting all of these wonderful bilateral tra free trade agreements with a range of countries and saying, hey, look, we achieved something. I mean, it's odd that... 
Labor would then st- suddenly be bipartisan and give the, Lab- um, the Liberal government a win on this. It is a strange one too because Jason Clare obviously is the spokesperson on this particular one, but yes. Penny Wong as Shadow Foreign Affairs spokesperson, she's been very strident against the TPP. So, you know, I, as, again, I just don't know what's going on inside Labor on TPP stuff. It seems to me to be unusual. Uh, I know the, the union movement's not too happy about it. Uh, because of, uh, the TPP contains a whole bunch of foreign worker clauses that would undermine certain aspects of, uh, you know, the Australian workplace laws. So, yeah, look, it's a, it's a strange one. Mm. Um, but, you know, in the broad, maybe we can just put it down to the, the, the never-vanishing zombie powers of neoliberalism and just the, <laughs> the desire, for, particularly in the Labor Party, but also just, you know, across the political spectrum um, for ever more free trade, ever more economic growth. You know, these, these are sort of truths held self-evident within yes. the political class. Um, it's hard these days to find people who are sceptical of free trade. You know, it's considered to be something of a, of a you know, basically a shibboleth almost. So, mm. yeah, look, um, let me go away and find to out for you. To be confirmed. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ben, while you do some reconnaissance <laughs> do some on research. that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I should just mention that it has uh, – it was debated in the lower house um, and uh, it has – oh, no, sorry, it wasn't the lower house. Yes, it was. It is the lower house. Yes, I'm making myself confused. Um about that was the TPP and uh, the criticism of the TPP for the record, if anyone is wondering who is not really on board, was from Bob Carter, Andrew Wilkie and Adam Bant. So um, that's a bit interesting that really you've only got three voices there. Well, that's pretty common in the lower house where you've got those kind of uh, independents and crossbenchers tend to line up against the major parties on mm, issues. Not Cathy McGowan, though. No, that yeah. So, I mean, I would imagine that's because Cathy McGowan is pro-TPP because of the agricultural possibilities for her electorate. Mm. So representing um, the seat of Indi up there in um, high country Victoria, a lot of farmers up there. The TPP supposedly will have benefits for farmers in terms of opening up markets in Asia, um, for farm produce. So yes. I'd imagine that's why she's in favour of it. And yet Bob Catter is also in a rural area with lots of agriculture and is not interested. Yes, well, but Bob is against free trade. Bob, Bob is against many things. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which would take a while to get into, really. It really does take a while yeah. to, to probe the, the, the mind of Catter um, and perhaps we should leave <laughs> Save that. Save that for another day. Let's leave that for another day. Yeah, I'm talking to Ben Eltham. He's a National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. There's another big development, Ben, that happened uh, on the weekend. It seemed to be a little bit like a preemptive strike um, because Four Corners will be running an expose on the aged care um, industry tonight, yesterday night actually and tonight and we've obviously seen a lot of other developments last year in South Australia on aged care and uh, really the mistreatment of the elderly in aged care. Um, Scott Morrison, our new Prime Minister, has announced a Royal Commission into the aged care sector. He hasn't set out a term, terms of reference as yet 
Uh, but one of the things that has been raised is uh, those younger people with disabilities who uh, require constant care who are also often uh, put in similar um, circumstances, sometimes with the elderly in aged care facilities. So there are some question marks around uh, the terms of agreement in this, the terms of, uh, what am I trying to say, Ben? Um, I'm not sure, Amy. Uh, <laughs> the terms of reference. The terms of reference we haven't seen yet, have no. we? No. And so what is the reason for this? Is it basically the government trying to get ahead of an issue here that they've really been behind on because they have yeah. actually received yeah, that's recommendations? Exactly, that's exactly right. Well, this is all about the thing... The, the fact that Four Corners had a show on aged care last night that revealed devastating conditions for older it's Australians. Cruelty. Oh, it's inhumane. It's, of course, it's inhumane. It's it's absolutely disgusting in a rich country. But this is the way we treat old people in this country, and it's it's something of an open secret. I mean, I don't know if yes. we need a royal commission to to get to the bottom of this. It's it's basically government policy. Mm. And I'll give you one example. There are no mandates for staff patient ratios or staff resident ratios within these homes so you know um there's been a there's been a a succession of deregulations in the aged care sector there's essentially very little federal or state regulation for these services many of them are for profit so they're they're by definition out to make money Mm. off their residents uh, so, you know, in many ways, those who know the aged care sector and people who have studied the policy of this area and, you know, and, and many of the, the interest groups like Council for the Ageing and um, Dementia Australia, that, they've been on the record talking about these issues for a long time. Yes. And of all kind of industries to regulate, you would think it would be very important to regulate those who are particularly vulnerable, such as um, the elderly, because there is a whole range of health, um, you know, issues from very well people who are just ageing naturally to people who um, have very late stage dementia and cannot advocate for themselves and also cannot remember um, what's happened. So they can't, for example, tell their family um, that they are you know, under duress or having very, very bad treatment. Well, absolutely right. I mean, I think um, it's one of those classic examples where the private sector needs to be heavily regulated in order for these services to be uh, properly delivered because, as we've seen, whenever the private sector gets involved in human services, whether it be health, whether it be education, whether it be aged care, what happens is that the incentives for profit take precedence over the conditions, um, the rights, the humanity of the, mm. the individuals involved. And, and I think aged care is no exception, and maybe the exception, in fact, that... Uh, in fact, it, it, it's maybe the, the rule, you know. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's a, there's a tremendous amount of reform to be done in this area. Um, neither Labor nor Liberal have covered themselves in glory. In fact, the, the current policy settings date back to the Rudd government and they've been implemented by the Liberal government since 2013. So both major parties are complicit in the current arrangements. Mm. Um, not only is there not enough funding, uh, but there's also not enough oversight on how the funding is spent and there's also not enough regulations on the private sector engaging in these activities. No, exactly. And I was interested in the fact that Kate Carnell, who um, many would know as a former Chief Minister of the ACT, but she's also now the Small Business Ombudsman, um, among many 
things in her career. Um, she actually conducted an independent review of aged care procedures and provided the government with those in 2017 in October. Uh, the government hasn't actually implemented any of the, her proposed reforms and she's saying, yes, we should have a Royal Commission, but why um, stop there? Shouldn't you be start to implement reforms that are going to impact upon people now? Um, because if we wait, I mean, the Royal Commission process is a very long process. It takes you know, years to get to a point where, you know, you unearth the evidence, the report is written, and then, of course, the government receives the report, considers the report, and then comes out and says what they will implement and then implements it. Well, yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? You have to balance the powers that a Royal Commission has, which are substantial. They're the most... Uh, the, 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 what's the best word for large amount of power? They're the most omnipotent powers yes. available in the federal system. Um, so they can compel witnesses, they can force people to testify. Um, they, and they've been very important in the Financial yeah. Services Royal Commission, of course, because for many years we knew how much rotten stuff was going on in that sector, but we could never get the data and we could never actually force these big top bankers to testify and to tell us what mm. was really going on. And for there to be potentially criminal repercussions. Yep. yep. So so it is something that other types of inquiry can't actually do, a Royal Commission, but you're right, it does take a long time. And often, I mean, I think the real problem for a lot of Royal Commissions is that their recommendations are never implemented. Governments get the big fat report, they put them on the shelf and then it gathers dust. Mm. And that's a real problem problem, particularly in things like Indigenous affairs, where recommendations around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody have never been implemented decades after the Royal Commission into those issues. So, you know, look, it's one of those issues where it's a, it's a combination of judicial powers, of politics, and of the, you know, the day-to-day -day cut and thrust of, of the political scene. Um, I think it is a good thing that we're having a Royal Commission and the Financial Services Royal Commission shows just how important these mechanisms can be to uncover the truth. Yes. And uh, you would think that perhaps given that the baby boomers are such a large proportion of our voting population at the moment, that they're looking at this thinking where next and perhaps might voice um, some support for some reform into this sector because our ageing population is really one of the most you know, huge issues of now. It should be a much bigger issue than it is. And, you know, I welcome the, the fact that it's finally come into public attention. And where would we be without Four Corners and the ABC to do this kind of public interest journalism? Certainly, we wouldn't expect to see this kind of thing from Channel 9. Mm. Um, and it's a real worry that Nine's taking Fairfax over because, you know, you'd have to worry about whether this kind of journalism is going to be happening in the merged entity. Look, um, it's a it's a massive issue, but the, one of the reasons it's it's not covered more, it's not a, ma a more political issue, is I think because of our increasingly atomized society and because of the way in which we treat older people in our society, we actually are very uncomfortable to face the reality of the way that many of our elders end their lives. Yeah. They often end their lives miserable, 
um, yep. in conditions far from their homes um, and in a lot of pain. And I think that's an indictment on us as a civilised nation. Yes, and it's very different from how uh, many other countries do that. For example, uh, in Asia, which is obviously a very large region, but there are many countries um, within Asia that prioritise their elders, the grandparents, and really, um, you know, it's incumbent upon the children who um, to look after their parents in their old age and, you know, their grandchildren. And it, it certainly means that the, the nuclear family over in a range of countries such as China is much larger than in Australia and that care burden is taken up by family members. So there are other ways to do things. Yeah, I mean, you can say that it should all be the family's responsibility, but of course some people don't have families, you know, and some people don't have the luxury of kids to look after them. So it's a complex area, Amy, and actually I think we actually need a proper safety net and we need a proper social democracy, a welfare state that can look after our most vulnerable in our society. We certainly are rich enough to afford it. Mm. It's more about the political and the social will. Yes, well, there should be a range of choices for people so that there isn't just one choice. Um, I certainly know that uh, some of my relatives would have preferred to be, you know, with their family, with their dog, you know, whom they love, uh, rather than, you know somewhere else. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, so it yeah. is about having that choice and having, as you said, a safety net, which Australia has very much prided itself on, having that always, you know, within, you know, should you lose your job, should you um, become very sick, to be able to be supported by the government because you have paid taxes, because Australia as a nation has decided that this is a priority, but it has slowly been eroded over decades yeah, well, I think it's very much a question of whether it is a priority. You know, it's, it's something that people always say, yes, we, we must look after our elders. But uh, if you look at the reality on the ground, it's very different. Exactly. Ben, it's been great to talk with you and uh, I look forward to talking again next week. Thanks, Amy. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to chat about federal politics. And I'm very pleased to have a special guest in with me. Her name is Alex Edney-Brown and she is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Melbourne, which means she's also teaches at the University of Melbourne. And I know that uh, particularly PhD candidates work very hard uh, on their teaching and possibly should be remunerated a little bit more um, than they do. But that said, she has a great level of expertise on this topic that we will be discussing drones waging war from a distance, which uh, Alex will be giving this talk at Richmond Library on Thursday, the 20th of September at 7pm. So hello there, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you and great to have your expertise. I think you are really uh, situated in a very unique position, having spoken with um, people who have been directly affected by drones in a military setting in the Middle East and also speaking with those who have operated drones. Um, So it's really great to speak with you. First up, um, what is a drone? Because, um, you know, there are various technical words for it, um, but you know, did did drones exist, say, in World War One or World War Two, but under a different name and, and perhaps that it was a bit more of a broader concept? 
Yeah, I guess the first thing to point out is that when we're talking about drones in this context, it's not the kind of drone that you buy for $100 at JB Hi-Fi. We're talking about um, airplanes that are essentially like any form of warplane, um, the difference being that they're pilotless, they're controlled remotely by pilots who are tens of thousands of miles away, like uh, they're on bases in Nevada or Las Vegas in the United States or in Lincolnshire in the UK. Um, so that's a primary difference because they still drop the same kind of bombs that ordinary planes Yes, yeah. such as um, I'm guessing fighter jets that would generally be in the Middle East, like the FA-18s, Super Hornets and that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And these are still used in tandem with drones. Yes. Yeah, so it's not that there's been a complete shift to drone warfare. Um, yeah, and in terms of their history, they have a really long history. So in World War One and World War Two, there are already attempts to try and remove pilots out of warplanes to both um, protect the pilot's life and also to um, kind of technologically wow the people living under them into um, into kind of situations where they felt totally powerless. Mm. It was called like the moral effect of bombing. If you just sort of lowered civilians' morale, then they'd entirely um, give themselves over to um, the enemy or what have you. And I was interested to read um, that there was a situation um, with a B-24 Liberator, which is a really huge plane. Like, this is a massive uh, plane with many, many personnel in it. It can carry huge amounts of fuel, for example, um, that actually went wrong because their version of a drone when they utilised this B-24 was to take it up into the air during World War Two, and then once they got it up high enough, then they had to parachute out of the plane before it then you know did did its job dropping a bomb and it didn't actually necessarily go very well all right you're yeah. teaching me things here i haven't heard of this yeah um, i was very surprised i'm particularly interested because my uncle not my uncle my um grandfather was a captain of b-24s for the royal air force um the british one so yeah i because i know how large they are i was very surprised that it could be you know a drone an unmanned um airplane of some kind are the drones that we currently use particularly i'm thinking america because they use them the most um how large are they in terms of proportionality to perhaps a a fighter jet plane or any other kind of machinery that they would use um they're surprisingly big i saw a drone in the um National Air and Space Museum in the United States and that was my first time seeing one in person and I'd gone and done all of these interviews with victims of drone attacks so it was actually quite um, a difficult experience finally being confronted with one. Um, I'd say that they're around the same size as as an F-35 fighter jet so like a normal fighter jet size but on the smaller end of things. Yeah. Yeah. So those who go to the Avalon Air Show will certainly know what we're talking about if they've seen the planes in person, but they are pretty big. Like, yeah. yeah. And they would probably need to be that big given that they're carrying the same kind of weaponry and arsenal that fighter jets do carry, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of them carry Hellfire missiles, which are 35 pounds, and others carry... Um, 
bombs that are 500 pounds, which are the same weight as what conventional military aircraft are carrying. Yeah. Um, and these are really big bombs, you know, like we hear of drones as being um, accurate and precise weapons that limit civilian casualties and civilian harm. But this is quite a purposefully uh, curated narrative by governments and militaries like it's just not the case that they're accurate at all yeah. and that's for intelligence failure reasons but it's also because of the size of the explosives that they're dropping if you drop a 500 pound bomb on um, a village that's like you're not just killing the people directly under the under the bomb you're killing mm. people up to 90 meters away as well yeah and that's um, – I was interested in the, the kill radius, as it said, um, for some of those bombs. You mentioned the Hellfire. Um, the radius there is 15 to 20 metres. And I'm guessing the one you were just talking about was the GBU-12. Yeah, that's it. Which is 60 to 90. So, you know, when you think about that 90 metres, for example, there are barely any situations, if any at all, perhaps maybe in remote mountains where there's only one or two people – within that radius. Yeah, precisely. If you were dropping a bomb in a village, there would definitely be other people within that radius. Yeah. Um, something that does happen fairly often is that people up in the mountains in Afghanistan are targeted because it's just assumed from a US military perspective that they must be Taliban. Mm. Um, so that would be like a rare situation in which only the person targeted is killed. But um, otherwise, there would there's a high chance that civilians are within the wake of the bomb. Yes, and you do mention there um, one of those examples where there isn't necessarily really strong evidence or conclusive evidence that this person is a relevant target to be bombing. Um, and I believe that there's a terminology for that type of killing and it, that it is really, it's a category in and of itself, that it, often these people are presumed uh, guilty rather than innocent. Yeah. Oh, there are all sorts of categories we could be referring to here. Yeah. Um, there's a fact that if you're a military-aged male in a combat zone, then you're um, deemed a legitimate, a legitimate target. Um, so if you're a teenage boy um, and you're in an area of war, which, you know, at the moment is like just Pretty the whole much of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, etc., yeah. um, then you're considered a combatant until there's posthumous evidence proving you proving it otherwise but then there are very few groups um, on the ground actually conducting um, post-strike assessment. Yes and usually that's uh, NGOs that really get into the detail and their figures are very or vastly different to official government figures aren't they? Yeah absolutely um, and probably even on the lower end of things too because NGOs have problems of accessing remote areas yeah um but just to give you an example of how different ngo figures are to official figures um obama in 2016 like finally succumbed to public pressure to release some figures mm. um and he said that between 64 and 116 civilians were killed in um Yemen, Pakistan and Somalia over, I think it was a three-year period or something. Yeah. Um, and the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, who have been committed to monitoring civilian deaths in those countries, mm. said that it was more likely that 1,142 civilians had been killed in those countries over that same time period. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, like 10 times higher 
the, than the amount that the Obama administration was admitting to. Yes, and um, it's interesting to note that those three countries you speak of are not war zones. There are not official wars that America is a part of in Pakistan, Yemen or Somalia. Yeah, absolutely. They're not declared war zones. Um, Unfortunately, uh, this also means that civilian casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan are often forgotten by NGOs and journalists because they like the story of this secret CIA war and Mm. these undeclared war zones. Um, uh, And while that's super important to draw attention to this highly secretive form of war, um, there are far more civilians being killed and injured in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria because of drone attacks, Um, yet these are kind of not given much journalistic attention because they're considered legitimate wars. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it is shocking really when you think about it that um, America is essentially breaching their sovereignty by conducting warfare-style behaviour in their countries. Um, You know, Pakistan, I know, is one of those areas where they believe there are many um, terrorists that flee to Pakistan or or go back across um, because that's one of those key countries. But it is still surprising that, you know, America has that licence to just go in and do whatever it likes. Yeah, absolutely. And when you sort of read US military documents, they still have a very sort of colonial mindset, like Afghanistan and Pakistan are sometimes not even referred to as distinct countries. They talk about like the AFPAC border, and it kind of creates this like amorphous zone where like no one has political self-determination within that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's very worrying. It sets, drone warfare sets an extremely worrying precedent. Mm. Yeah. And if we're looking at the American example, um, I know a lot of people at the end of Obama's presidency um, you know, praised him for being such a, a great visionary leader, um, you know, for having won the Nobel Pre- Peace Prize. Um, but then there are some of the, the most vocal critics of Obama were, was exactly this, his use of drone uh, drones and not only the continuation of that use of drones but an increase in the use of drones and also solidifying it as military policy by acknowledging the use of drones and how they've been used obviously not in very great detail but certainly at least fessing up to it because I noted that uh, President George W. Bush, which obviously feels like a long time ago now, um, authorised around 50 drone strikes that killed 296 terrorists and 195 civilians in Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia. But then Obama, I'm sure, is, you know, many, many more times that. And obviously um, the, the figures I've got are not at the end of his presidency. So do you have an understanding of just how greater uh, it was, drones usage was under the Obama administration? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, for those of us who are researching in this area or journalists working in this area, um, he's been nicknamed the drone president. That's how um, regularly drone attacks were um, conducted under his presidency. I know that in his first year of um, his presidency that he conducted more drone attacks in um, Pakistan, Yemen and Somalia than George Bush had done for the whole of his presidency. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty upsetting that he was awarded the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize because under his watch, like, you know, hundreds of civilians were being injured and killed and like very deeply psychologically affected from living under drones too. Mm. Um, 
I think that drones are probably the perfect weapon for like moderate to left-leaning governments because you can kind of create this idea amongst your public that uh, you're conducting a very ethical form of warfare that's barely harming the civilian population and so you can keep sort of public support or at least public complicity um, around the, war, the wars that you're conducting. Mm. Um, also, you can use them pretty secretively as well. Um, so if you're worried about public backlash in war, then, um, I don't know, being able to conduct strikes using the CIA, for instance, or using the US Air Force and then having, like, really poor um, forms of record-keeping or transparency. Like, this is all very, very politically convenient, you know? Yeah, it is. And Australia does play a role in supporting drone use in uh, America, you know, around the world. Certainly, um, it's been widely reported that uh, the Pine Gap military base... uh, you know, which is obviously a really important intelligence collecting and mining and sweeping kind of base, um, utilising those massive satellites that they have access to. Um, you know, Pine Gap has been said to be one of those um, bases that provides vital information that gets passed on directly to America in terms of what might be potentially relevant targets. Yeah, absolutely. Pine Gap has a huge role in uh, US-led drone um, attacks by processing intelligence um, and that intelligence is then used to identify people for uh, drone attacks. Uh, there's an airbase in Germany that kind of operates under the same system mm. um, that they need to process the intelligence and then identify um, quote-unquote insurgents for um, drone attacks. Um And part of the reason that the United States needs these facilities um, provided by their allies is that they're collecting so much intelligence they actually just don't have um, enough analysts to sift through it um, and to to come up with targets. Um, They need uh, other people in their, um, in like friendly or allied countries to be doing some of that processing because we're just talking about like such vast amounts of data every day like thousands of hours of surveillance imagery being captured on a daily basis Mm. they're just swamped in data yep and you know so we have reference there australia um i know that australia the the government has said that they would spend around $2 billion acquiring their own armed drones uh, by early 2020s. So, you know, Australia is now trying to take part itself, um, at least in having a capability of using drones. It is interesting that we haven't really had much of a public debate around this as to whether uh, this is something the Australian population would support. Yeah, it's super interesting and, like, extremely worrying, right? Um, yeah. I guess this kind of speaks to the fact that foreign policy is barely spoken about at all. Um, and Australia is undergoing this huge defence build-up at the moment, like its biggest defence build-up since World War II, and there's been very little public mm. discussion about it. And there, there ought to be, as you say, this is like the first time that Australia is actually getting an armed drone capability of its own, like it's contributed to drone warfare in other ways, not just through Pine Gap. Um, it's also flown surveillance drones over Afghanistan for over four years. Um but this is the first time I'll be using armed drones and, like, I, I've barely heard anything about it um, in sort of mainstream media no. 
It was news to me when I was researching for this interview, so that's saying something. (laughs) Yeah. Because I do read some of those foreign affairs, you know, news sources. Mm. Um, I would like to quickly really get on top of some of the first-hand experiences you have you know, really gathered the, the information you've gathered from speaking with um, particularly Afghanis. You've gone to Afghanistan to speak to people who have um, been surveilled by drones, whose family members have been killed by drones, um, usually just because they were in the area where there was a target. Um, and I would like to really understand more about what life is like to be not only in a war zone, um, but be in a war zone where sometimes you cannot identify, um, you know, any military equipment that could be of a direct personal threat to you. Because obviously the fighter jets are huge and they make a massive sound. So, I mean, not all of them, but the majority of them, particularly the FA-18s, etc., you know, do make those huge noises. You know what's coming. Yeah, I guess... Um the difference between living under drones and like occasionally having a, a, a normal warplane flying over you is that drones are sort of persistent, like they're in the air for hours at a time. Like your whole day is disrupted by hearing this boom sound over the top of you. Um, and for everyone I spoke to, they were aware that drones had surveillance cameras on them that um, people who have never gone to Afghanistan before have no um or very little knowledge of Afghan culture mm. um, are watching them from above and, like, making lethal decisions on that basis. Um, and for people who've lost family members and friends to drone attacks, and that sound is really triggering, you know? It takes them back to the to the day where um, their brother or their son or their best friend was killed in a drone attack. So not only are they, you know, reminded of a really um, difficult and traumatic experience when they hear that sound, they're also worried about, well, maybe today will be the day that I die in a Mm. drone attack or that my other sibling will die or that my son or daughter will die. Um, Yeah, it's hard to know where to begin when I'm asked this question because... um, the stories that I heard were just like so moving and there were effects like psychological and social effects that I hadn't like, even considered despite having read about this topic for, you know, four years now, mm. um, including the ways in which it's affected their social life. Um, like social gatherings have been targeted in the past. Any group of people congregating together um, is quote-unquote suspicious. And so there have been attacks on like wedding parties and funerals and political meetings. And so for people living under drones, there's this huge fear about now engaging in those activities. Um, The other thing is that nighttime travel um, is almost entirely avoided because um, they're worried that nighttime, like travelling at night, will be considered suspicious Mm. and grounds for bombardment. And so people were saying that, like, it used to be a huge part of their culture to go around to their friend's house for dinner um, and to to even stay the night um, and to definitely go around to friends' houses and stay the night if they were grieving a a relative. Like, this is a really big part of their culture in terms of showing empathy that you would go around to a friend's house and stay the night. Mm. And uh, they've, I was told that, like, most villages have stopped this or they've like drastically limited um, all of these sort of forms of um, socially interacting 
out of fear, you know, that they'll be um, considered a potential insurgent and bombed because of that, you know, that has a huge effect on your social well-being. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's affecting pretty much every aspect of their life, you know, their financial means. If someone in their family dies, um, you know, also that restriction of freedom and and movement and freedom to express themselves and their culture seems to be like a huge thing that you've just said there. And obviously the, I mean, the clear one is the violence that, you know, is eventuating from utilising drone warfare. Um, I know that one of the uh, people who has been interviewed, I'm not sure if this is someone you've interviewed, um, Brandon Bryant. Yeah. Yeah, so it's probably a quote um, from your research, perhaps it was from the ABC. Um, It's a great story that I know you were a part of and really critical um, behind. And I really, it struck me um, what he said. He suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and he recounted one of his traumatic experiencing experiences um, saying, quote, the smoke clears and there's this guy over here and he's missing his right leg above his knee. He's holding it and he's rolling around and the blood is squirting out of his leg and it's hitting the ground and it's hot. His blood is hot, but when it hits the ground, it starts to cool off. The pool cools fast. It took him a long time to die. I just watched him. I watched him become the same colour as the ground he was lying on. Yeah, they're not, there aren't many words to something like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear or read testimonies of um, the drone pilots and sensor operators who have actually had the bravery to come forward and speak about it um, because we kind of popularly think of drone warfare as like a form of playing video games. Um, but for... Some or many, it's very hard to tell how many people who are drone pilots are emotionally affected in this way. But we know that at least some of them like really develop um, emotional connections to the people that they're surveilling. They've been surveilling them for days, weeks, potentially months. They really work up a sense of um, that person's life, you know, Mm. their relationship with their children, their relationship with their partner, what their day-to-day schedule looks like. And I I did have the um, pleasure to meet Brandon and interview him and he talked about how uh, even the details about someone's life he didn't know he would start sort of imagining and making Mm. up stories for them, um, like filling in the gaps almost. Um, So you can see how uh, empathy might start to develop if you're watching someone so um, intensively for a long period of time and then to be the same person who then um, presses the button that drops the bomb on them um, you know, that's that's heart-wrenching stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're also tasked, drone pilots and sensor operators are also tasked with, like, watching um, the, the scene of the attack after the bomb's been dropped. Um, and so you're kind of left in... Uh, you're left watching the injured or um, dead person um, and seeing like people rush to their bodies and seeing the funeral unravel and all these really sort of emotional um, events. Uh, It's heavy going stuff. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's not just uh, the civilian harm to to consider and to to really, really consider, um, but there's also the fact that like this isn't going to be easy for Australian Royal Air Force um, drone 
pilots and operators either. Like yeah. This is not a clean, sanitising, distant form of war, even if that's how it's sold and packaged to the public. Like For people spending their whole working life just watching death and destruction, that's heavy going, that wears mm. you down, you know. Um, the other people I interviewed in the States have... Uh, problems with anxiety and depression and substance abuse. Um, they've had friends who have suicided in the drone program. Um, so it's it's not easy for those who are who are doing it, and it's definitely not easy for those who are living under drones. Yes, exactly. And I know that a lot of it is shift work. So you know, it seems to mess with people's sleeping and waking periods. You're in this kind of, I guess, a bunker really, like a, a closed off area just with air conditioning and and food um you know looking at a screen it's it seems like a very unnatural you know workplace environment to begin with let alone the actual content and activity of what people are expected to do yeah absolutely yeah the quality of life is extremely poor you're working Mm. really long shifts 12 to 14 hours every six weeks or so um your superiors might say, okay, now you're on a day shift or now you're on a mid shift, now you're on a night shift. So your schedule's like constantly changing. Um, you're in these sort of really remote areas of the United States where you haven't got much of a social life. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's really not ideal. No. And I think that one of the interesting things that you wrote in one of your pieces was around this um, use of technology. A lot of media and others have talked about, as you said, the video game kind of theory, which is, oh, well, you know, if it just looks like it's a game, people will have, it'll have a distancing effect and you don't have that level of um, personal engagement or emotional attachment or involvement. Um, But you know, you raised a point which I think is really pertinent is that technology is so pervasive in our lives that there is this kind of blurring of distinction around what is reality and what is not. You know, we spend a lot of time on the internet, a lot of time on social media, and we don't really distinguish between what happens online and what happens in our day-to-day world. It is really very much meshed together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the idea that just because something is mediated that it's not going to be potent or it's not going to move you in an emotional or effective way, like I I don't know how we would arrive at such a conclusion considering we live very mediated lives, right? We do, yeah. I was just on a Skype conversation with a friend in New Zealand who told me that she was pregnant and I was like deeply moved by this conversation despite the fact it was taking place over Skype. Um, yeah, mediation doesn't mean that we're emotionally distant from the other human. Exactly. Um, Alex, I just want to quickly touch on another element of this ethical and moral discussion. Um, particularly, it's been very relevant um, in tertiary institutions, universities particularly, um, around defence organisations and companies which are often owned from by international companies, particularly American companies, um, creating research links into major universities in Australia. And that kind of ethical dilemma or conflict that many students particularly um, identify when they're made aware of these increasing links. What has been 
you know, how much of a link is there now between, I guess, research hubs or research um, areas in universities and defence companies and, and the defence industry? Um, or at the start of it, I'd say that uh, if you asked me this question in three or four years' time, I'd say that the extent of the partnerships was huge. At the moment, these contracts are, have been signed very recently, like last year or the year before, and so we're very much in the start of this sort of militarisation process. Um, but it's not looking good. Mm. It's really not. Um, we have the University of Melbourne setting up a research lab with Lockheed Martin, the world's largest weapons manufacturer, and this is their first overseas research lab, so it's very significant for them too. Um, we've got a handful of universities in South Australia, University of South Australia, Flinders University, and another one that I'm forgetting right now, um, but they've recently signed on to a, a research contract with BAE Systems, um, which is the largest weapons manufacturer in the UK. Um, so this is all deeply troubling stuff, at least I find it deeply troubling, because um, Weapons manufacturers are essentially capitalising on um, students who are in deep debt. Um, they're really uh, quite open to the idea of receiving a, um, a generous scholarship and they're not necessarily aware of the fact that weapons uh, manufacturers are producing weapons of war. Mm. I mean, if you read the publicity material um, that the university is uh, sending out and also that the weapons manufacturers are sending out, um, these companies are described as like advanced technology companies rather than weapons manufacturers. Um, so they're really uh, doing a good sort of public relations spin on what the kind of research that will be conducted. Yeah. Um, so you can clearly, like you can kind of easily see how an undergraduate engineering student who may not be like particularly political would say, oh, a generous scholarship, an internship possibility. I'm not going to have heaps of student debt and all I'm doing is contributing to an advanced technology company, you mm -hmm. know, not, not a weapons manufacturer. Um, yeah, it's, it's really troubling and um, it, it upsets me a lot. I mean, like the people that I interviewed in Afghanistan, the bombs being dropped on them are made by Lockheed Martin. The surveillance that they're um, subjected to, that whole infrastructure is pretty much manufactured by Lockheed Martin. And now, like, my fellow PhD students at the university will be, you know, contributing to that, to that business, to that industry of killing. Yes. And this is really um, important because a lot of those scholarships do stipulate um, what type of content needs to be produced or at least the topic that needs to be looked at um, in order to receive a, a really generous scholarship. And it, it works well in some areas like history where there's you know, a huge lack of understanding of perhaps migration um, from certain areas to Australia and the lived experience of migrants. But if you're talking about something such as this, that, that does raise a, an ethical question around, you know, whether particular individuals would feel comfortable contributing such a substantial amount of intellectual contribution and capital, a huge portion of their life, which is weighed down by a PhD, you know, the stress of, of completing it, let alone what the topic is. Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the um, sort of most intelligent things that the weapons industry has done has... Um, has been to sell their products as having both civilian application and military application um, because in doing so, like, PhD students can just say, 
oh, you know, we're, we're manufacturing drones and drones are used to deliver humanitarian aid, therefore, you know, we're totally yeah. ethically justified. And it's like, yes, drones are used to deliver humanitarian aid. They're also used to surveil and bombard people. Mm. And, like, perhaps, this is just a suggestion, <laughs> uh, but perhaps we could have a society where uh, we did all of this great civilian research um, yeah. um, without it also having, like, this huge dark sort of military side to it where, you know the regularity of violent attacks um, is an issue. And um, I don't know, I, I, I would just hope that university research would be put towards peaceful ends rather than like increasing the amount of violence that we have in the world. Yes. Well, certainly every university is meant to be encouraging its students to think critically when they're engaging with the world. I know that's really the essence of an arts degree, which is why I think it's so awesome when people study the arts and humanities and social sciences. Um, we just did have Social Sciences Week, which seemed to be largely unacknowledged by people. So I think that's also a really good point to make is this over-focus on STEM can sometimes be to the detriment of other important endeavours. Uh, Alex, it's been really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have with me Nick McClellan, who is correspondent for Ireland's business uh, journal or magazine, and and they're based in Fiji. Nick McClellan um, wrote a wonderful book, uh, which is out through ANU Press, and which you can read online for free, or you should buy it if you um, if you're really interested. And it was called Grappling with the Bomb, and it was about Operation Grapple and the um, H bomb testing that went on in. The Pacific. It's such a great book. And if you want to check out that interview with Nick, it is up on SoundCloud. Uh, but he joins me now to talk about the Pacific Islands Forum, which was widely publicised uh, in the lead up because Nauru, who was the host of the 2018 forum, uh, was denying journalist accreditation to particular journalists that had been critical of Nauru and uh, the asylum seekers who were in mandatory detention on Nauru for a long time, um, locked up in a gated community. They're now no longer um, locked up but still are on the island. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for coming in. Good morning, Amy. Morning. And I just recently um, saw that a New Zealand journalist was detained also for interviewing a refugee on the island during the forum. Yeah, this year... There was a whole range of topics discussed at the Pacific Islands Forum. It's an annual meeting where leaders from the 18 member countries come together, but there were obvious sensitivities for the Nauru government led by President Baron Wonga. Um, Australians obviously will know that uh, going back to 2001, um, our government has offshored its refugee processing. Um, there are hundreds of uh, refugees and still some asylum seekers on Nauru, uh, and uh, the government has been very hostile to media that have given critical coverage of the situation of the uh, refugees on Nauru. Um, this year, although normally uh, media can get accreditation uh, to attend these regional meetings, um, there was strict conditions put on the media. Indeed, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, was banned mm. explicitly from the meeting because they... Uh, had reported previously allegations of corruption against the uh, President, Baron Wonga, and against the Minister for Justice, David Adiang. 
um, other media such as The Guardian newspaper and SBS who've run critical coverage of this issue were also applied for media accreditation um, but uh, didn't make the cut. Mm. Um, I was lucky enough to do so even though I've written critically on this question myself. Yes. Well, you certainly have written, written critically about it, but very um, balanced, I might say. And it's clear that you're coming from a point of insight because you actually know the people that are part of this um, issue. You've kind of interacted with not only locals in the Pacific region, but also with the leaders of certain nations when you're reporting and, and speaking on these topics. Well, that's often the criticism you get from Pacific Island leaders, um, whether honestly or dishonestly, and I think in this case it was some of the criticism of the media was dishonest. Mm. But um, one of the big problems is that the Australian and to a certain extent the New Zealand press pack travel to these regional summits with the Prime Minister or in this year's case the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne. Um, the media really focuses on what the Australian leader has got to say and sometimes get spun the Australian perspective on issues. And many haven't taken the time or energy to build up working relationships with officials or indeed leaders from the island countries. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, writing for a regional magazine like Islands Business, we focus on the concerns not just of the biggest members of the forum, mm. Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, but also the smaller island states. And those states are often the most vulnerable in issues around uh, climate change, around uh, poverty. They're also countries that have a very broad and bold agenda to change the regional discussion. They want to talk about issues around oceans, around resource management, around how do you adapt to climate change and draw on the resources. And many island leaders I've talked to are often critical of the Australian press pack that they don't uh, listen to the, the issues, the agendas being advanced by neighbouring countries mm. and, frankly, they tend to get spun by all the Australian government spin doctors who tell them this is the issue. You know, you have to focus on China as a rising threat. You have to focus on, um, you know, corruption in, in, in governments and not really address uh, the agendas that are being advanced by the vast majority of forum member countries. Yes. And I would like to talk about the membership of the Pacific Islands Forum because there were a couple of new members in 2016 that were slightly contentious. Um, full forum membership was given to New Caledonia and French Polynesia and they are still countries that are not uh, independent from the coloniser that, you know, set down their flag and basically took over, which was France. It's a really momentous change. Um, you know, the forum was created in 1971, so it's had a long history. In fact, next year is going to be the, the 50th uh, Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting. Um, the forum grew out of a body called the South Pacific Commission, created after the Second World War, and that included all the colonial powers like France, the United States, Britain and others. And the early forum leaders, the island leaders of independent countries, decided they needed space to talk about their issues mm. from a, an islander perspective. And so the forum has until recently been an organisation of independent sovereign nations. As you say, two years ago, the two French colonies, uh, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, were included as full members. And indeed this year in Nauru, Wallace and Futuna, the third French Pacific dependency, was upgraded to the status of associate member. 
they're not quite in the room where the forum leaders meet in a retreat, mm. but they're certainly, you know, on the pathway to becoming full members. And that's a reflection that France has cleaned up its act from the, the days in the 80s and 90s where France was testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific, where the French military were engaged in armed conflict with the Kanak independence movement. Indeed, French terrorists came and blew up the Rainbow Warrior in the mid-1980s um, uh, because of widespread public concern across the region about nuclear testing. Today, France, under President Emmanuel Macron, presents itself as a key partner on climate issues. And indeed, France has a much better reputation when you look at uh, other ANZUS allies like the United States, which is, as we know, withdrawn from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Mm. Um, Australia has just had another coup in Canberra um, where climate policy was one of the central issues. People in, in Canberra say, oh, this was about nothing and why, why would, did this happen? But you only have to see the way in which the Morrison government has withdrawn from the National Energy Guarantee, has downgraded... Um, emissions reductions and that's a crucial crucial concern for vulnerable pacific island states that are often low-lying atolls that face yep. uh, significant problems such as kiribati which i know you know they're already experiencing the effects of sea level rises on their islands well all countries around the world are experiencing climate change. I mean, it's called global mm. warming for a reason. Well, There's I mean a... water encroaching on their land, though. Yeah, I mean, if you're, yeah. you're living on an island with a relatively small land mass, there's only so much more higher land you can go to. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's also the immediate impacts on things like food production um, with growing salinity in the soil after storm surges that can impact on nutrition, on, on, on people's well-being. Um, the pollution of water supply and underwater lenses for atoll nations is a big concern. But Pacific Islanders also point to Australia. They say, hang on, you've got a drought across central New South Wales and parts of Queensland. You've had bushfires in winter across New South Wales. Um, the point is that this is a global challenge, but our Pacific neighbours are small developing countries. They often lack the financial capacity and the technical assistance needed to make the transition towards new energy systems. I mean, we've got the coal lobby in Australia mm. blocking the transition towards greater use of renewable energy. Um, Pacific Island countries are making that leap much faster. Many have very ambitious targets to move away from diesel uh, fuel for generating electricity towards renewables. It makes sense, um, but they need assistance from OECD countries to, to make that leap. Yeah. And that's where this is a, a big part of the debate uh, in Nauru. Pacific governments were, were calling for more urgent action, much stronger action. And indeed, Australia's uh, representative, Maurice Payne, uh, was involved in trying to block and, and water down the wording around these concerns. Yes, they were, or Australia was specifically referred to as a nation, I think you said, with a capital A. Um, there aren't that many in the Pacific who are at the Pacific... Islands Forum who aren't necessarily on the climate change bandwagon. We, um, we were trying to get the island leaders on the record about their concerns because this year, uh, before each forum leaders meeting, there's a group called the Smaller Island States. As the name suggests, these are the, the little guys within the forum. Tuvalu, Niue, uh, Nauru, Kiribati... You know, Nauru, the host country, only has about 11,000 people, the same population as Tuvalu, even Kiribati with 100,000 people. It's a very small country, um, big in land area, big in ocean area, but small population. 
and they have particular concerns that are different to the larger forum member countries like Australia, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, uh, New Zealand. They caucus each year and they put forward a, a very strong communique calling for action on issues of their concern around transport, around communications and each year around climate change. They called for stronger action to reach the target of uh, emissions reduction to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. Um, they want what they called for accelerated action on emissions reduction. And for the first time ever, the forum adopted that communique. Not normally the wording and diplomatic languages, we just note that communique. Yep. This year the forum endorsed it. Mm. So most of the forum members, with one exception, endorsed this call for more urgent and stronger action on climate. And it doesn't take much to ask uh, uh, who, who's, the, who's the bad guy in the room who's trying to block this action. And um, in the final press conference, I was the only Australian journalist who attended that final press conference, yeah. and we tried to get the leaders on the record. Um, and Eli Sopoanga, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, with a smile, wouldn't name the country, but after prodding he did acknowledge that it was the country that began with capital A. Mm. And um, as you say... Australia is the only one. We've had a few complaints from Austria and Albania and Andorra <laughs> um, that they don't want to be associated with such bad behaviour. Yeah. It's a joke, but it's not a joke. No. Um, at a time that the United States has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement, there's great concern that other countries might follow that path. Um, there's great concern that a mid-level power like Australia, which on the international stage is often seen as a good international citizen could follow the Trump pathway and that would cause a serious blow to the global climate negotiations which are coming up later this year in Poland, mm. another country that's got a great coal lobby and pushing for weaker action on emissions reductions. Yes, and environmental laws that they are flouting and hopefully will be fined for. Um, certainly, we've covered on this show their logging of primeval forests in their own nation, which is against the EU law. Um, you mentioned their international citizen, and Australia as a middle power has always considered itself to be a good international citizen on most issues. That's probably debatable, but on this topic of... Uh, emissions reduction. Malcolm Turnbull, when he was ousted as Prime Minister, mentioned the ideological divide around emissions in the Liberal Party. Uh, Melissa Price, the new Minister for Environment, was on ABC Radio during the Pacific Islands Forum saying just that, you know, despite the fact that the National Energy Guarantee is basically dead in the water, um, she is confident that Australia will easily meet its Paris um, climate agreement targets, emissions reduction targets, and she had no real explanation as to how on earth Australia would get there, um, apart from its, you know, climate financing funds, etc. Um, it seems like the government has rhetoric of, oh, yes, it'll be, she'll be right, it's out into the future, um, you know, it'll all happen. Um, does that create any sense of unease amongst the Pacific Island nations when they hear that kind of rhetoric saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll happen, but they're not really seeing a great deal of action? Oh, there's enormous concern about Australia as a forum member, as a fellow forum member. Um, you know, while we were in Nauru, we heard uh, senior government ministers like Energy Minister Angus Taylor, who's a known opponent to wind power and um, many sources of renewable energy, talk about how um, the cost to Australian consumers was the issue and emissions wasn't. Uh, we heard mm. 
the um, former Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Conchetta Fioravanti Wells, who uh, lost her position as a minister during the Turnbull uh, Morrison Dutton battle, um, come out and call for the ditching of Paris and uh, the construction of coal fired power stations. One Pacific leader said, Hang on, she's been the Pacific minister. She's the one who's supposed to carry our concerns into the Australian government. Mm. Um, and it was noted as well that. Uh, um, in the new Morrison government, that position, which was a ministerial position under Turnbull, has been downgraded to an assistant minister yes. for international development and the Pacific. And a number of uh, officials and leaders that I spoke to at the meeting were concerned that this was yet another signal. Um, the very absence of Prime Minister Scott Morrison um, was noted. Mm. Um, this was his first opportunity as a Prime Minister to come and engage with his counterparts around the region. Sure, he'd only been in office for a short time, but, uh, um, you know, these these signals are worrying. And I think, uh, you know, Scott Morrison's Chief of Staff, a man named John Kunkel, is a former lobbyist for Rio Tinto, one of Australia's growing uh, largest coal exporters. He was former Deputy CEO of the um, Minerals Council of Australia. Mm. So I think that our Pacific counterparts look at the way in which Canberra politics is uh, trying to protect uh, the fossil fuel industry, uh, the mining sector and so on, and uh, there are concerns. Uh, many of our Pacific neighbours have joined an alliance known as the Powering Past Coal Alliance. It's a global network saying we need to be making a transition away from fossil fuel use um, everyone acknowledges that, but the question is how far and how fast. And um, I think there's a real concern that Australia, because the mining sector is so important in the national budget, because exports uh, of coal and other fossil fuels are, are key uh, drivers of policy, um, because key mining sector companies and corporations are big donors to the major parties, um, you see the debate about Adani still continuing yes. despite the notion that, that the big Carmichael mine in the Galilee Basin will, will eventually be stranded assets as the world moves towards new energy sources mm. and uh, renewable energy sources. For our island neighbours, this is not a, a matter of, of theory. The Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, Dame Meg Taylor of Papua New Guinea, who I interviewed, said this is, this is about survival and um, there's a lot of quiet anger um, that uh, uh, we've had four prime ministers change and the failure to adopt a climate policy has been a central part of the transition each time from Gillard to Rudd, um, Abbott, Turnbull and now Morrison. Yes, exactly. Um, it was interesting to note that Scott Morrison chose to go to Indonesia and you know, strut around um, looking very, you know, leaderly in his first international engagement rather than be at the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, it is interesting also that you note the influence of the fossil fuels um, lobby in Australia. Certainly Australia hasn't found an equivalent 
uh, industry to replace the fossil fuels industry in terms of um, its impact on the budget and its impact on GDP and our, you know, the vision that we're expecting economically is severely lacking. Um, but as you say, you know, Australia, we are a very rich country and we can weather certain bumps in our economy greater than these smaller nations, which are, you know, on a much, much um, more unequal playing field. But I think you do see that debate in Australia about the costs and benefits of building some industries and not others. You know, right through Queensland and New South Wales, we've seen the lock the gate movement in, you know, quite conservative rural areas, including national party seats and so on, where people feel that the the role of uh, fracking or the coal industry um, will damage broader agricultural um, areas. And, you know, Australia's opportunity to be the, the clean, green um, exporter of food and uh, uh, turning natural. New Zealand's really done this to try and sell to China mm. using a clean, green image. Um, if, we, if we focus on an area like mining that produces relatively little employment, uh, we may be having opportunity costs in other sectors. And that, look, that debate's going on in Australia, and I think this is the point. Well, These it's just our are... federal politicians are not up yeah. with the times. <laughs> These issues are global challenges. Yeah. A lot of the things that were discussed at the Nauru Pacific Island Forum meeting are not Pacific problems. They're, in fact, global challenges. How do we deal with climate change? How do we protect the oceans, a vital source of energy, of food? How do we address the pandemic of violence against women, which is an issue in Australia, just as is in Pacific Island countries? A big topic, of course, how do we deal with the rise of China and other emerging Asian economies, um, India, Indonesia, Korea? You know, we've seen in in recent years a big shift um, within the, the Pacific, which historically was tied to France and the ANZUS allies, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, as the major powers in the region. In recent decades, we've seen a lot more interest and activity, investment, trade from other countries. Um, Our headlines talk a lot about China, but it's also Indonesia, it's also Korea, India, Russia. Other players are active in the region. Mm. And that's because our island neighbours are looking very pragmatically about the sort of opportunities there are to engage with these, they use the jargon, these development partners um, and uh, there's a, a pretty pragmatic attitude to dealing with big and powerful players, even like China, even like Russia, um, which going back uh, decades people wouldn't have touched because they're fairly conservative Christian nations and their fear of communism, the fear of the threat from the north mm. was, was deep in many people's souls. Nowadays people are much more willing to look who's going to work with us on the core issues that we're concerned about. Yes. Um, It did come up more recently uh, regarding the Solomon Islands who um, were seeking funding for a massive infrastructure project to connect them, you know, to cable um, internet that was faster and more effective. And obviously internet is so critical to any country of any distance from other nations around the world. Um, Could you share more about that tension that has existed publicly around um, Australia being concerned of China's influence, um, particularly its economic influence over Pacific Island nations and whether that concern is actually warranted? One of the things we've seen is that in recent years, Australia's overseas aid program 
and also investment from other areas such as infrastructure has dropped away in the Pacific Islands. Um, going back to the the period before Tony Abbott, there was a bipartisan consensus to increase our aid to 0.5% of gross national income. It's a technical term, but it's basically the ratio of aid mm. um, that we should be giving. Um, the global target is 0.7. Britain reaches that. Some Scandinavian countries reach that. But we're going backwards. And in fact, our overseas aid program is at the lowest level recorded since the mid-1970s. Um, and is in, under Scott Morrison, is, in, is planned to drop over the next couple of years. So governments are very concerned about where they can get the finance, the capital, to invest in the infrastructure, in the development programs and so on that they need. And uh, as I mentioned, countries like India, China, Indonesia and others are stepping up. As people will know, the Chinese have massive global investment programs through the Belt and Road Initiative and they've created new agencies to act on this. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, as the name suggests, is a billion-plus dollar investment uh, program into infrastructure and much of that focused in Southeast Asia and the stands, but some of it for the Pacific Islands. Um, there are Chinese uh, state-owned corporations that are very active around the, the region um, and China is becoming a, a small but significant aid donor. Australia mm. is still the largest aid and trade investment partner in the region, but in recent years China now gives about 8 eight or 9% of all foreign aid coming into the Pacific. And that's a big leap in recent times. Certainly nowhere near Australia, but it's enough to raise eyebrows from all the, the hardheads in the security and strategic sector, the National Security State in Canberra, yeah. who are concerned about how aid might play out for strategic advantage in the future. Yes. And in particular, I mean, there are some circumstances like that Solomon Islands one where Australia has directly intervened and um, specifically made a, a better bid, so to speak, to provide that that resource and infrastructure to the Solomon Islands over Huawei, which is a, a Chinese company, um, which has sought to provide a range of infrastructure services, not only to the Solomon Islands, but also to Australia, particularly 5G is an example. And Huawei's been banned from uh, bidding for the tender for Australia's 5G network on that basis. Mm. I think it's an interesting example, this cable linking Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Australia. People do want better broadband. You know, it's got enormous potential to advance livelihoods and industry and, and business and so on in these small island states. Um, China has offered that sort of infrastructure and Australia has come late to the party. Um, what's striking, however, is that the money that's being uh, put forward to build the Australian-funded cable to the Solomon Islands is coming out of the aid budget. Mm. It's not coming out of new and additional money. And there's a great concern from many grassroots groups that as Australia shifts its aid program towards these big infrastructure, big-ticket items, it's going to draw away money from programs around health, around education, around community adaptation to climate change and so on. So, you know, yes, Australia's stepping up, but it's just re reorganising money within existing budgets. And there's a concern that without new and additional resources flowing into development programs and into investing in our regional relationships, this is a big problem. Mm. It's true for climate finance. Uh, one of the central pillars of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change is a global fund called the Green Climate Fund, which will assist developing countries to make the transition towards new energy systems to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. 
Um, Australia is giving about the same amount as we did in 2009 each year in climate finance. But by 2020, we'll be called to ramp up, indeed, almost a five-fold increase. Now, whether we've got a Liberal government or a Labor government, neither of them are talking about how we will meet that commitment. Mm. But this is going to be a big issue this year in in Poland during the global climate negotiations that OECD countries, wealthy capitalist countries like Australia, need to step up to commit finance to assist the developing world to make the transition that we all need. And we've seen Donald Trump um, back away from this. When I was at the Nauru Forum uh, two weeks ago, um, a Trump cabinet member, uh, Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke was there. Mm -hmm. Um, He pledged great commitment to the region. um, But when we challenged him in a press conference to... uh, um, on this issue of climate finance, he got really shirty. Um, the Obama administration pledged $3 billion uh, to the Green Climate Fund but only got a third of that, a $1 billion, out the door to the GCF before the change of government when Donald Trump was elected. Since then, the Trump administration has refused to provide the extra $2 billion pledged. Now, this is 20% of the Green yeah. Climate Fund's uh, capital. It's a major blow... And the worry is that countries like Australia and other countries will Mm. follow the American example and step away from commitments they made going back to 2010 uh, to assist developing countries with the capital that they need to address all the challenges of climate change. Um, So these are big, big picture items. And for ordinary Pacific Islanders, they sort of look at, at how supposed friends like Australia are acting And it's no surprise that they're willing to to look at other people like the Chinese, like the Indians, like the Russians and others um, for assistance uh, and so on. Yes. I wonder about Jacinda Ardern, who is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's a recent um, Prime Minister, you know, coming into that role and she is a more progressive Prime Minister than her predecessor. Um, What is the the view from the other Pacific Island members on New Zealand's record and its current plans around issues like climate change and foreign aid? New Zealand is seen as a more Pacific-oriented society. I mean, there's a large Maori population and also a significant number of people who've migrated from Tonga, Samoa, Cook Islands. It's a very much more Pacific-oriented society than Australia. We tend to look Mm. to Asia, and when we think about, say, international students coming, it's Asia. Our trade is with Asian partners. So I think New Zealand is seen as a more uh, Pacific-focused country. The Ardern government pledged a, a reset in the relationship with the Pacific and pledged another $700 million in development assistance, uh, so they've made signs in this area. There are other issues of concern when New Zealand is, is very different to Australia. I'll give one example. Um, many Pacific countries experience nuclear testing um, and uh, uh, they're looking for assistance for clean-up and compensation. Um, they've signed the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, an international treaty agreed last year um, that a number of ratified, uh, Mm. Cook Islands, uh, Palau, Vanuatu, have all signed and ratified this treaty. So has New Zealand, even though it's a member of ANZUS, which is a nuclear alliance. Um, Australia, alone in the region with Japan, has resisted, indeed opposed, this treaty. Um, Our Asian neighbours, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, have all signed the treaty. They see this as a way to address a nuclear-free world Mm. um, because of the roadblock in there are no global negotiations on disarmament. So New Zealand stands alongside our Pacific neighbours on the nuclear issue 
And when I interviewed uh, Prime Minister Ardern, she talked about the issue of nuclear contaminants, uh, the problem that countries like the Marshall Islands and French Polynesia, which are forum members, uh, are living with the, the legacies of nuclear waste being dumped on their land and ocean that are polluting the marine environment. There's a big challenge for the future about how to clean up uh, the, the legacies, the radioactive legacies yeah. of a, an era of nuclear testing. And um, New Zealand, with its nuclear-free New Zealand policy, is very much more aligned with our Pacific Island neighbours than uh, Canberra is. And that was noted, once again, uh, not just on climate, but on trade, on nuclear issues, on a number of issues. Um, we, we stand apart from the policies advocated by many of our near neighbours. Yeah, that's really interesting um, because obviously there are some islands that are in, uninhabitable, particularly in the Marshall Islands um, where America tested a huge amount of weapons over there. Did Jacinda Ardern talk about what some of the solutions might be or how New Zealand could actually be involved in it? Look, I wasn't in the room where the leaders were in the retreat and it must be said this is her first forum meeting. Um, in the public sessions, everyone seemed to be asking about her new baby rather than <laughs> talking policy. Uh, uh, she's, you know, a lot of the forum leaders are quite elderly and so right. she was uh, a bit the dutiful daughter. Right. Uh, it was an interesting change this time in the retreat, though. There were four women. It's unprecedented. Mm. Um, Maurice Payne from Australia, Tina Rehua from Palau were both uh, ministerial representatives, uh, President Hilda Heine mm. uh, of the Marshall Islands, Prime Minister Ardern. And so they're raising issues, they're addressing issues in ways that uh, bring up agendas that have, have not always been on the agenda. Um, and so you have a, a lot of concern about issues like non-communicable diseases, um, issues around uh, violence against women, uh, issues around the, the gendered nature of poverty, um, women's access to finance, microfinance and so on. There are issues bubbling away. Um, it's worth noting that the, the two top leaders of the Forum Secretariat, which is the regional secretariat in Suva, Fiji, which host the forum, um, Dame Meg Taylor of Papua New Guinea and Christelle Pratt, her deputy, both women. Mm. Um, so there are a number of women moving into leadership positions across the region and really, I think, advancing agendas um, um, that, that uh, haven't always been as high profile on the table. I went um, to sit in on a session uh, when she arrived, uh, Pri uh, President Heine of the Marshall Islands, um, met with a group of young Nauruan women uh, for an informal dialogue on the Saturday night when she got a, literally got off the plane. Um, she saw that as her role as one of the first elected uh, leaders of an independent island nation yep. to talk with young women, to talk about the possibilities of them stepping up into the public sphere. In many countries, women play a vital role in churches, in civil society and so on. But she was saying that, you know, there's a place for women at the top table and I think mm. it was a really interesting discussion. Um, um, we were encouraged not to ask questions to leave the space for the young Nauruan women, but they all signed up to get a signature like a rock star to get photos. <laughs> the selfie stick is omnipresent in the Pacific. And uh, yep. I think you're seeing women leaders taking their place um, in the, the forum retreat. And, uh, and I think over time um, that will play out uh, with a, a new focus. That's fascinating, um, Nick, and I, that's certainly one of the elements that I don't think has been highlighted, at least in Australian discourse recently. So um, I really appreciate your first-hand interpretation and account of what happened on Nauru at the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I know you're going to head off to New Caledonia 
um, to observe what is happening there. Could you just briefly let us know the important thing that's happening? Yeah, on the 4th of November, New Caledonia, which is one of Australia's closest neighbours, will be holding a referendum on self-determination. This is the culmination of a 20-year transition under a deal known as the Numir Accord, which sought to resolve conflicts in the 80s between the French state and the Kanak independence movement, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. So voters go to the polls on the 4th of November to determine the political status of the country. Polls suggest that the independence movement won't win this time, but there's further votes scheduled over the next five years. So uh, as a correspondent for Islands Business, I'm going to report. Um, people who are interested can look at the PAC News website. Uh, Pacific Island News Association puts out a regular, regular wire service and we'll be reporting um, over the next month, uh, talking to people on the ground about what's happening and uh, what's the future for this uh, French colony in our, uh, in our near neighbourhood. Mm, it's a huge development, even that they're going to the polls on this, and it'll be really interesting to watch the discussion around it. Well, this is a big issue in the region. You know, there's a strong nationalist movement in West Papua. Um, Bougainville will due to go to a referendum uh, next year, or probably 2020, um, uh, to address their political status in relationship to Papua New Guinea. It's a sensitive topic. Canberra doesn't want to talk about it very much, but self-determination for the remaining territories, colonies in our region is a, a big question. And uh, once again, it's an issue on the agenda at the forum. Um, our media doesn't really pick up on it, but it's uh, a big concern across Melanesia and is going to dominate the regional agenda over the next couple of years. Mm. Thank you so much, Nick McClellan, for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much. Uh, always look forward to chatting again. Definitely. I'm sure we'll um, get Nick back in to talk about that huge development for New Caledonia and uh, other island nations as well. Uh, we have been speaking with Nick McClellan, correspondent for Islands Business Magazine, which is based in Fiji, and Nick attended the Pacific Islands Forum for 2018, which was in Nauru as an accredited journalist there. I'm really excited to have with me Steve Lambert, who is a US-based artist. He's American, and um, don't hold that against him, of course, um, given Donald Trump and all the wonderful things going on there. He's um, a refugee in Australia at the moment. Um, no, he's not. He's a touring artist, and uh, he is joining me in the studio to talk about one of his wonderful works. Um, it's called Capitalism Works For Me! Exclamation mark. True or false? And it is actually touring Melbourne and Steve is with um, his artwork a lot of the time talking to Melburnians about this issue um, and he's also uh, do, does a whole range of things like creating other artworks. He's also co-founder of this Centre for Artistic Activism which really does quite um, well summarise, I guess, what you're currently doing, Steve. Thank you very much for joining me in the studio. Yeah, glad to be here. It's awesome to have you. And um, I was just telling you off air my first ever foray into knowing who you were, but I didn't actually realise who you were, um, was that one of my friends had bought actually your artworks um, printed on a website and it was about um, sex and it said... 
we have had sex in this room and, and it just kind of looks like it's hand-painted and it's framed and you put it in that room and then your guests presumably wander into the lounge room and it says, we have had sex in this room also. And then they maybe move into the kitchen and it says, yep, this one too. And I just thought that is the funniest thing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Like, I probably thought it was more funny when I was at college, as I was saying, because I literally did look around and think it probably every room has been utilized. Yes. Over the history of that home, probably. Yeah. 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 I did that because I was selling artworks and I realized like, you know, the people that were buying them, all they had to do was write a check and I wanted them to have to sort of invest a little bit more. And in that case, it was honesty. <laughs> it is pretty honest. Because I'm sure, you know, people aren't that traditional, are they? That they only utilise a bed? You never know. Who knows what you goes know. on in, an, in a, someone else's house, which is what I just think is hilarious. <laughs> but let's get on to the political side of your work, sure. which is really awesome. Um, and one of the most striking parts of your work is that it draws on advertising imagery and signs and, and I guess calligraphy, typography. Right. And, and certainly it definitely makes it recognisable and somewhat attractive mm-hmm. um, because it's also drawing on advertising that's not necessarily from the ugly time of now where it's like contemporary and it's busy and it's there's not a nice aesthetic whereas you know some of these works particularly the one we're talking about you know it's like it's from another era it's that classic era where we probably think that things were a bit better right right yeah so there's a nostalgia part where people yeah. see it and they're like they there's a few things that it does one is like makes people feel comfortable but the topic itself is uncomfortable, right? So mm. the aesthetic has to be really comfortable and attractive and then familiar, right? And it speaks a language that they understand. If if I talked in the language of fine art, you know, like you kind of need a little bit of background in that and have visited a few museums and you lose a lot of people. So advertising is very legible format for most of the population. And what I love about, and especially with the capitalism works for me sign is mm. people like it before they've read it. You know, it's it's only what four words, you know, but they they're standing back and they're like, oh, what's that? And then yeah. they get closer and they realize only later what they've gotten themselves into. Well, it's lit up as well. It's, yeah, it yeah. has that immediate, you know, your your eyes would be drawn to it based on just that. Alone. And it flashes in these mesmerizing patterns, too. So oh, people awesome. often end up sort of getting mesmerized, <laughs> you know, staring at it. And and also staring into their existential angst, which is whether capitalism, which they rely on for so many things, such as perhaps their iPhone or their, you know, laptop or whatever, um, you know, how many people really do stand back and examine whether it's working for them. I don't think we have the time in our everyday lives for that. And that's what's great about art is that mm. it create it can create a space where we can kind of Look at other perspectives, you know, and in the past, those are literally, you know, with Picasso, you've got other perspectives around the room, you know, and he's like trying to paint multiple perspectives at once. But this is the same thing, right? It's giving you a chance to sort of reflect, look at this from another perspective, evaluate it in a way that, um, you know, of course, not this station, but radio, TV, newspapers don't often do, which is just present the economic system as a given, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, this is the market. The market is doing this as if it was its own thing that had a mind of its own. And then we all just adapt. But we live in a democracy and we can, you know, once we evaluate it, then we can say, all right, well, if this is working for these people and not working for these other people, 
what do we want to do? Do we want to change it? Right. And we can change it instead of just accepting economics as this, you know, force that cannot be controlled at all. Exactly. And when I was thinking about the uniqueness of your work, it did make me think that I'm sure there are, and and I know some um, contemporary artists who are trying to deal with this issue in a range of ways, you know, doing direct representation of certain situations or being a bit more abstract or um, contemporary. And so sometimes an audience may attend an exhibition such as that and really have no idea immediately what the meaning is or what the topic is or how they're meant to engage with that issue. They might eventually, after pondering it for a bit longer or reading the wall decal if there's a description, but it's not instantly engaging or as accessible sometimes when things are a little bit more um, abstract or undefined. Yeah. And, you know, I I teach at a university, so I have to defend that kind of art to the students' parents when they make it, you know, like, (laughs) no, this is important and it's valuable and I can do it, but it's definitely not for me. Right. Yeah. I think um, there's a way that artists sort of um, what are they? It's like they look at the work and then they, or they're talking about the problem, but they're not actually doing anything about mm-hmm. it. And, you know, I'm not saying that the sign is going to end the capitalist system or something or result in concrete policy change, but it is a step in that direction, right? Yeah. And it, and it involves people, them evaluating it and making a decision is the first step to them deciding, okay, maybe we need to change something. And there'll be other people and other works that hopefully follow up on that. Um, mm. But the kind of artwork that just sort of represents a problem to me can be really uh, debilitating for people, right? We, most people understand that there are massive issues going on in the world. We could go get on the bus and ask everyone, you know, like, do you think there are problems? And they'll say mm. yes, you know. Um, so pointing out and, you know, as a lot of artists say, like raising awareness about an issue, um, that's like the lowest hanging fruit. And to me, yeah. the the harder thing is, okay, once people are aware, and I, I would argue that most people are, what do they do about it, you know? Well, they leave the gallery, remember it for a little time, and maybe they do or maybe they don't do something, but it's probably more like sign a petition or... Well, in a lot of cases, I think they leave depressed. Yeah. And, and with the same feeling I was saying before of like, well, this is really screwed up. And it's a huge issue that like, how yeah. does one person and, make change? And then globalizing that to like, well, the world is kind of screwed up and then just turning inward, right? Like, so mm. I'm just going to focus on me and what I can do and get to that yoga class later and try to feel better. Not that that's wrong, but, you know, we all have to cope. Yeah. But it, it turns inward, right? Instead of saying, okay, well, here's this issue. We all realize, that, you know, or many people realize this is a problem. We've raised that. Now, what are we going to do? And I try mm. to bring that up in the conversations that I have with people in front of the sign. It's like, all right, so, you know, some people say, oh, it works for me. I, you know, older, older man, I've had one job my whole life. I'm retired. I own, own property here in Melbourne. You know, mm. they're set and it has definitely worked for them. And I'll say, that's great. Congratulations. You are among this half, you know, this half of the population, but you can see the other half it hasn't worked for. And they've, they're also working really hard. Mm. So we'll what can we do? And then you start um, getting into like a more productive conversation instead of just realizing all the problems in the world and getting bummed out. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to get bummed out about all the problems in the world. Yes. Yeah. 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 When you talk to 
passers-by who, you know, Nick McClellan, who was just in here, said he saw your work outside the State Library of Victoria. There was a huge line to participate. When you have that interaction with people, what are some of the responses that people have when they're conflicted or a bit um, confused or on the fence? Because I'm guessing there are some people who would say, yes, it works for me, but I can see it also doesn't work for me in other ways. And then there's that whole other issue of it doesn't work for a lot of other people that aren't right. me. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways you can interpret it. And, and people often will say like, I, I don't, I want a third button, you know, <laughs> or I want 10 buttons and I want to be able to pick but because there's only two and they have to pick true or false they often when they whichever one they choose they'll go back and forth because they everyone kind of lands somewhere in the middle except for a few yeah and in the going back and forth they feel compelled to speak about it so the the fact that they only have two choices is what makes them talk Mm. and the line actually the line isn't waiting to participate the line is part of participating yeah you know it starts as soon as they see it and um, we have like groups of people that will go and say you know sort of explain what the sign is and then say you know in your life do you think capitalism is working for you yeah and they're um i work with them to help ask these probing questions right that because a lot of people immediately will have a reaction of like, no, no, it doesn't at all. And I'll say, well, hang on a sec. You know, like you're here in Melbourne. What do you do for a living? You know, and kind of talk it through a bit um, and get them to a more thoughtful place. Right. Yeah. What they press in the end does not matter to me. Um, it's the what I love is when they get to the podium and they're like, all right, do you know what you want to do? And then I'll say something and they're like, oh, wait, I'm not sure what I'm going to press now, you know, because they've, <laughs> yeah. and they've, that might be the third time that that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting. Just what you're really raising here is how often do people critically reflect upon their own circumstances or think in um more, uh, big picture way in terms of major movements or issues. Like, for example, in Australia, you know, we've recently had discussions about neoliberalism and when is it that, that, when's that going to end? You know, has it already died? Is it still living? You know, I'm sure it's a lot more alive in America, um, particularly with the advent of Donald Trump, though he's very populist. So, you know, there's confliction around his policies and his viewpoints at every turn. But, you know, we have seen that discussion, but that's because, you know, for example, a person released an essay and then we have a discussion. But it seems that these discussions happen in bubbles or they're segmented and you don't have that general population discussion, which I think is what your work is doing because it's out in public in areas that have high foot traffic that would engage with people who would never really perhaps want to think about or just think about this issue. Yeah, I don't think it uh, enters onto their radar. And what's unfortunate about that is that most people's understanding of capitalism is what people in power would prefer, which is this is not something for you. This is not something you have control over. This is not something, this is just boring. And it's just a, 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 like, it's like the weather, right? Like, you know, oh, there's a storm coming. There's like a high pressure thing here, right? It's uncontrollable and it just happens. There's a recession. Why did the recession happen? Oh, so there's some bad behavior, you know? Yeah. Like, it's all very vague. Um, And the idea that, we could have control over the economy or any input as regular people 
is not what powerful people would prefer you to understand. Mm. Um, but it's true. And this is especially true in the United States. You know, like my favorite definition of socialism is democratic control of the economy. Right. Um, we are taught that democracy. I mean, it's not overtly taught. It's a subtext, but that democracy and capitalism are intertwined. Right. Mm. And there is some truth to you can't have a developed capitalist society and, and have it really closed. They tend to be open liberal societies in that, you know, liberal of meaning open. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a point where that keeps going in the development where it becomes really unproductive. It becomes environmentally destructive. It, it turns into the kinds of things we've seen in the U.S., you've seen in Australia around, you know, turning on immigration and, and deciding that these outsiders are are, are coming to get us and destroy our uh, livelihood and things like that. You know, all these things are connected. I mean, I think there's connections even to the opioid crisis in the U.S. So, Hugely. Yeah. yeah. So you have, you know, there's a way that capitalism develops uh, uh, a place. And, and you know, I'm, I say that with hesitance, but I think it is true. Mm-hmm. And then you need to sort of move on. Then you need to figure out ways of like bringing the, that economy back into control so that it doesn't go into neoliberalism. Yeah. Well, this is an important thing that you point out. I mean, if you think if capitalism doesn't work, for example, I'm guessing perhaps some people in America might say, oh, well, what are we going to be? Socialists, you know. If- oh, well, that gets said here too. Really? Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> or like, well, what's the alternative? You know, Stalin, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I always like cut people off. I'm like, the question is not whether or not capitalism is better than a socialist dictatorship or mm. a communist totalitarian state. That is an easy question. The question is, does capitalism work for you? And if not, what do we want to do about mm. it? Right. And if it doesn't work for so many people, what do we want to do about it? That does not mean nobody is going to say, like, let's start a Hmm. socialist dictatorship where all of us will be oppressed and starve. Exactly. No. And I think something that has really declined in popularity is particularly Europe's embracement of social democracy, which was to really rein in market forces and mm-hmm. distribute more equally, um, you know, wealth when it was created by business. That has, you know, was really an important foundation of Australia at some point, mostly in um, the UK and Europe. Right. Right. And it's not really anymore. And I know there are lots of people trying to bring back a bit of a resurgence. And there's also a degrowth mm-hmm. movement, which is to say, why do we have to keep growing? Can we just, you know, be sustainable and live sustainably? Are they some of the potential different ways of doing things? Yeah. And I have, I mean, we could talk about that. I have like issues with the degrowth thing. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the progress like we do need to progress. We do need to grow, but in a way that can sustain the lives of the millions of people that exist on the earth mm. and that there is there does need to be like a big movement forward instead of backwards right um i'm you know big science fiction fan in that way and, and a utopian sort of thinker um in the best ways i think yeah. that lead us towards those kinds of solutions but um yeah you know like i think those are ways and and but again my point with the sign is not you know, people are like, well, what is the alternative? And mm. sometimes I joke around, I'm like, well, I have this book, and I like reach down, <laughs> like I'm good. I have this giant book for them to Steve read. Steve Lambert's manifesto. Yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have. 
nobody has the perfect plan. If we had that plan and it was obvious, we would do it, mm. right? So we need to figure that out. And we're not going to figure it out without being able to evaluate the economic system we have. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Steve, I just want to also touch on some of your other works. I did see, I can't remember where I saw this now, um, but you were holding a sign and I think it was at an AIDS conference. Yeah. And you were talking about pharma. And I, obviously many people would know there's like big pharma, these huge pharmaceutical companies. And then there's mom and pop pharma. Yeah, of no. course, you know, just homegrown <laughs> I marijuana. Think it's kind of all big pharma now. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but, um, but, uh, it really struck me because you were talking about, you know, farmers taking over our conversation or our activism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hadn't even really thought about the role of pharmaceutical companies in things like, you know, the AIDS epidemic and crisis. Right, right. So I was yeah. working with uh, uh, ACT UP. Uh, or no, sorry. Now, I'm going to remember their name in a minute. Um, but working with a few groups that are working on Hep C and, um, and AIDS prices of medication, right? Mm. And we were at the AIDS conference, which is like the biggest health-related conference in the world. And the sign that we had, uh, had and I would hold up in lines, I would just find a line and hold up next line and yeah. say, line up here if you're afraid that pharma stole the movement, right? Mm. Or, and then we had another thing that you could choose whether or not you think pharma or global funders were more responsible for the current crisis. And the reason is that pharma, like their prices for medication are just accepted. And then the problem becomes like, well, how do we pay for this? Yeah. Will the government subsidize, yeah. in Australia's example, certain medications? Right. And, the, and if they don't, people die, right? And like no one should die because medication's unaffordable. And so letting pharma have too much control over that conversation, you know, if you're the nation of Australia and you're buying medication in bulk, you can negotiate, right? Yeah. And so one of the things we did was have a negotiation class for people <laughs> that had to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. And it was basically look them in the eye, say your price is too high, and then that's it. And then when they, whatever they say next, look them in the eye, say your price is too high, right? <laughs> because yeah. they often don't negotiate. No. Yeah. And people wouldn't think to. Perhaps it's not necessarily culturally ingrained as it is in some other nations that bartering is their main way of doing business. Yeah. You've got a big company like Pfizer or Merck or something and to say, well, you know, we don't want to pay that. It's not like you're buying a used car, but yeah. it's much more like that than you'd ever expect, right? Mm. You're buying millions of treatments. You can say, look, we, we, we want to pay $10, you know, and then just see what happens. And they do negotiate prices around the world. Yeah. No, it's really, it's fascinating stuff. Um, it's great to chat with you, Stephen. Welcome back to Melbourne. It's great to have you back. I like being here. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Don't be a stranger. I'll do what I can. <laughs> I've been speaking, speaking with Steve Lambert, who is an American artist. He's an activist artist, and he's also uh, the co-founder of the Centre for Artistic Activism. And he's uh, works in a university teaching our wonderful art students how to do great art as well. So that is also very heartening to hear. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.